Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we have part two of Jim Porfreyman's Pulsar Pursuit. But first up, here's a report on the Australian Biology of Aging Conference. Biological ageing is a process that underlies a huge range of diseases that affect quality of life, cause social isolation, disability, healthcare spending, and ultimately, death. Seeing ageing as a biological phenomena allows us to intervene in ageing to treat all these diseases and to drastically reduce healthcare spending in the community and improve the quality of life for everybody. I spent a long but fascinating day at the Australian Biology of Aging Conference held at the Coogee Lifesavers Club in Sydney. The day started with a talk on delirium from Gideon Kaplan of Neuroscience Research Australia. Delirium is a set of symptoms characterised by profound confusion. It's the main cause of falls in hospitals and speeds up dementia in older people. Curiously, there are no animal models of delirium that show the full set of symptoms in the syndrome, which makes it very hard to study. Dominic Hare at the University of Technology, Sydney, has found that iron accumulates with age and causes neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's disease. These iron excesses can be treated with chelation therapy to remove the extra iron from the body. Iron fortification of food, particularly food aimed at young people, is a badly targeted way of improving the diet that can lead to these unhealthy accumulations of iron in the brain when they get older. There are no mechanisms in the human body to naturally excrete iron. There are actually advantages to babies and young children having non-anemic iron deficiency, such as a restriction of gut-borne bad bacteria. Unfortunately, baby formula has too much iron added, which leads to babies growing the wrong kinds of bacteria in their gut. Research shows that the infant gut bacteria does better at keeping out harmful bacteria when there's an iron deficiency short of anemia. Age-related motor neuron disease is also known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or in the US as Lou Gehrig's disease. There's no natural mouse model of the disease, so the Macquarie University team, led by Adam Walker, created a mouse with controllable suppression of the protein TDP43 that's a marker of motor neuron disease and is found in cells in the brain and spinal cord of people with the disease. 
Mice with production of this protein switched on developed motor neuron disease symptoms that led to early death. Mice who had the protein suppressed after developing motor neuron symptoms were able to clear up the TDP43 protein from their systems and recover completely from motor neuron disease. The mice went on to live normal lifespans. Even mice who had the production of TDP43 suppressed at a very late stage of the disease managed a complete recovery. This indicates that targeting the TDP43 protein for therapy may lead to a successful treatment of mononeuron disease, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. At the University of Queensland, they've discovered that inhibiting the protein PI3 kinase in mice protects them from brain damage from stroke, amyloid plaques and brain inflammation, indicating that this will be a good target for drug therapy for neurodegenerative diseases. Cellular senescence is a part of a cell's life cycle reached when it can no longer divide because its telomeres have run out. At this point, they should reach apoptosis and die to be removed from our bodies. Our bodies use this mechanism to fight tumours, heal wounds, and in embryonic development. In wounds, senescent cells are shed as scars. In embryos, apoptosis stops growth in certain directions while others continue allowing, for example, fingers to separate. It's also a common feature of age tissue. Where senescent cells hang around, never quite dying and leaving the body, and causing problems like promoting cancer. Using a mouse model, a team led by Darren Baker from the Mayo Clinic found a drug that activates a transgene called INK-ATTAC, I-N-K-A-T-T-A-C, that blocks cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 2A, also known as P16. The result is to clear the senescent cells from the body, reducing the symptoms of ageing. Clearing senescent cells with the drug and transgene extended the life of mice by 28%. Clearance of senescent cells stabilised symptoms of ageing, but didn't reverse them. Professor David Le Couture from the Anzac Institute at the University of Sydney had a controversial talk on the mechanisms linking low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets with age-related health benefits, or as I like to call it, the anti-paleo diet. His studies in fruit flies and mice show that it's not fat or calories that make the difference in life extension, but the ratio of proteins and carbohydrate. His study recommends that the diet of the long-lived people of Vikanawa, who eat a 1 to 10 ratio of protein to carbohydrates, is best. I'll be interviewing Professor Le Couture in the weeks to come. From Otago University came research about the liver sieve and ageing. The open pores of the liver influence the metabolism of cholesterol. The problem is that the holes get smaller with age. Nitrosomes from cured meats like bacon close the holes quicker than anything. The diabetes drug metformin, which is being trialled as a longevity drug, acts to make the holes bigger. Muscle wasting and frailty come about as we age because of a reduced amount of muscle growth in response to exercise. At the Baker IDI Heart and Disease Institute, they're working on therapy based on applying folostatin to young and old mice. The mice taking the folostatin grew bigger muscles faster in response to exercise, 
In the mice, the folostatin was given using a carrier virus. They expect to develop a drug for humans. At the Garvin Institute, they found that heat shock protein 72 in muscles reduces obesity-induced insulin resistance, such as is found in type 2 diabetes. Exercise activates heat shock protein 72, but people's bodies respond less to exercise as they age. A drug called BGP-15 can activate heat shock protein 72 to treat type 2 diabetes and has recently been approved as a safe and effective treatment. Mice with increased heat shock protein 72 had increased mitochondrial function, which led to better health. Mitochondria, the powerhouse of cells, are the organelles at the heart of ageing. BGP-15 also protected against fibrosis, the thickening and scarring of connective tissue. I'll be interviewing Professor Mark Fabreo about this work in the coming weeks. The two causes of death that are not falling in the 21st century are dementia and kidney failure. They're increasing. Jonathan Stone from the University of Sydney proposed that dementia and kidney failure are a result of the ageing of the blood vessels, the hardening of the aorta and great arteries. The brain and the kidney both require a high blood flow. When the arteries have hardened with age, the strong pulsing of blood causes damage as it bashes through the blood vessels. People given continuously pumped, pulse-free artificial hearts were healthy, indicating that there are no negative consequences to losing your pulse if the blood is kept flowing. Use of such artificial hearts in the future may prevent damage from pulse pressure. I'll continue my report on the science of the Australian Biology of Ageing Conference next week. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, part two of Pursuing Pulsars. Jim Palfreyman is an astrophysicist at the University of Tasmania, three quarters through completing his PhD. Continuing on from last week where he explained what pulsars are, this week Jim tells us about his research and what he found about the Villa Pulsar. There was a large jump, a step, in the uh, pulse width profile. Suddenly it got smaller. And now this lined up with a micro glitch. Now I haven't spoken about glitches. The Villa Pulsar is a young pulsar. It's only 10,000 years old and it's, it's slowing down as it spins, as they all do. But occasionally it does this thing and we call it glitching. And, and not all pulsars do this. The ones that do tend to be young. And what that is, that's when it speeds up suddenly. So it's sitting there, spinning, spinning, slowing down, slowing down, and it suddenly speeds up. And this is, this is a bit of an enigma why they do this. The theorists, the neutron star theorists, have some ideas on what might be doing this, but the data doesn't quite add up, especially with the Vela pulsar, that the glitch is too large for it to be counted for by the method that they think. And I, I can try and explain it to you if you like. So what happens there is picture we've got a, a hard crust and a superfluid core spinning very fast. So inside that superfluid core, picture you've got little mini tornadoes. They're called vortices, but a picture of them are like 
little mini twisters. They're very small. Now what they do is they get stuck. They get pinned to the side of the crust at the outer part of the, where the core meets the crust. But the crust is slowing down and there's these forces get pushed, uh, sort of get on these uh, vortices. And there's, there's a force called the Magnus force, which actually most of you will be aware of in some, any of you, if anyone's played any ball games, be it golf or soccer or, or anything where you curve a ball, the way that ball curves, if a ball swings in the air or a, a backspin on a tennis ball or a table tennis ball or a slicer or a hook on a golf ball, that's all caused by the Magnus force. So the, the hypothesis goes that the Magnus force as the pulsar is slowing down, sort of is putting stress and strain on these vortices, and then all of a sudden they become unpinned from the crust, and all the stuff inside the star moves around, and that causes a brief spin-up. Uh, but the problem is that there's not, you know, if you add up all the information we have, it doesn't quite add up to the, the size of the glitches that we're seeing. And so, well, one of the things I'm hoping to do is, is obviously catch the next glitch. As it happens, it happens about every three years. Notoriously hard to predict, but hopefully we'll catch it and get to see it live. So during those three years, we sometimes get micro glitches, which is like little speed ups. <laughs> They're not very big. So if, if, if a glitch had a magnitude, I'll just use the number 3000. And that's actually a, a change in frequency times 10 to the minus nine for those who are interested. But let's use just the number 3000 as a decent sized glitch for the Vela Pulsar. A microglitch might be something that's under a thousand, and, and a microglitch occurred while I was observing uh, of a magnitude of seventy-five, which is, you know, it's pretty small but quite noticeable. And the interesting thing I noticed was that the pulse profile at that point suddenly got smaller, you know, jumped to a smaller value, which was a little bit confusing. I mean, unfortunately, my paper probably asks more questions than it answers. But that's the joy of science. That's why I love it so much. You, know, you, yes. you answer one question, and uh, you know five more open up. Um, so that's part of what what I found. Uh, I'm also was measuring the bright pulse rate um, during all this time, and I have a graph in my paper of the bright pulse rate and as the number of bright pulses per hour, and that changes quite drastically. Sometimes it goes from very low, and then there was a tiny, tiny micro glitch that occurred as well. Like, and we're talking around the 0.4 on that scale I said before, you know, barely measurable. And the bright pulse rate went through the roof when that happened. And But when the other larger one happened, the bright pulse rate didn't really change much at all. So, yeah, it's it's all a bit of a paradox and all a bit, bit strange. So, But, you know, each time you, you observe, you add to the data set. And so someone else can come along and read the paper and they might have a hypothesis that they're working on and that might fit. And, you know, as a group, we can all try and work out what's going on. That's amazing. So tells you that the model for the pulsars wasn't quite what you thought, that they're, they're moving in different ways. Mm. You've got these corkscrews yeah. and these micro vortices, and there's a lot of complex motion going on by the sound of it. Absolutely. And the, the mathematics, some of it is well beyond my skills too. The, you, know, you have to take my hat off to the neutron star theorists. Yeah, they do some amazing stuff. It's an incredibly complex environment. It's a very... As a laboratory, it's one of the most extreme environments that we can observe directly. Black holes would be more extreme, I'd expect, but we can't see inside them. So this gives us an insight of what might be inside a black hole. But yeah, very extreme. High magnetic field, lots of momentum, fast speeds, incredible, incredible heat 
all happening at the same time. So it's, a, it's an interesting laboratory because you, you could never recreate this sort of stuff in a laboratory. So what we're hoping to do is learn, we'll learn how matter behaves in these extreme environments. And, and that, you know, we mightn't be able to see it now, but that can have benefits to society down the track. Um, if you know, we, we work out how superfluids behave when spinning you know, and, and you know, these vortices that we're talking about, if we can work out how they behave, there might be some uses, uses for that. It's a bit hard to say at the moment, though. Absolutely. Mm. Well, that's the, the value of abstract knowledge. It always becomes useful eventually. It does tend to. And, you know, there's some people studying away about radio waves reflected around in the CSIRO a number of years ago, and um, they came up with Wi-Fi. And, um, you know, studying the, the, the physics of um, magnets and water molecules and up came MRI machines. So, you know, there's, you know, but at the time people weren't really heading for that or, or knew that it was around the corner. So the key is to study what you find interesting. Hopefully one day it might turn into something really useful for society. Maybe it won't, but the, it, it's like a detective story and that's, that's part of what I love. I think so. And you're an astrophysicist. What's the difference yes. between an astrophysicist and an astronomer? <laughs> <laughs> now, seriously, it's, it's probably nothing. I know it's a better word, I think, from the sense that you know, the, the, the biggest slap in the face you can do is call an astronomer an astrologer. And you know, <laughs> people, people think it's funny and all and ha, 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 but... So that's probably part of the, the reason the word has, has changed. Astronomer is probably someone who's, who's more does it as, a, as sort of getting a telescope out and looking at the stars and just looking, looking at how nice it is and just going out and, and looking at the sky because that's a lot of fun too. Whereas astrophysics is, strictly speaking, you're, you're actually diving in and doing what I've been doing and you know looking at the data and trying to relate it to physical laws and you know, and putting real life physics into it. So, all professional astronomers we would call astrophysicists. And if someone wants to become an astrophysicist, mm. take on the career that you've taken, what yep. do they have to do? So, if you're in high school and you want to go on to become an astrophysicist, what do you need to study? You need to study maths. That's the simple answer of the question. You you need to study mathematics at the highest and hardest level for as long as you possibly can. <laughs> So if you're in high school, and I tutor mathematics as on the side as a as a, as a hobby, if you like, because I have a passion of getting students into into this and other things, and you know, sciences and engineering and STEM type subjects. So if you're in high school, you need to do the highest level of maths you possibly can, which normally I don't know it depends on where you are and what they call it, but typically the advanced maths course. Then when you get to college and they call it a different name in, in different states, it's Math Methods here and in Victoria. And then they normally have a specialised course in grade 12. It's not compulsory to do that one, but it'd be really good if you can do that one. That really helps you. And then when you enter university, that's you've then got the ticket to, with that maths course, you've got the ticket to do the appropriate physics and astronomy courses, as well as a bit of maths at university as well. So it's the core part of the subject. If you've got good math skills, you can walk into it. That's the main thing to walk into any of these uh, sort of degree programs. Uh, and that's what I did, actually. I have actually uh, started off with a degree in mathematics. So that's how I sort of ended up in uh, in astrophysics. So what, you did a undergraduate in maths and a master's in physics? So, yeah, what I did was 
Actually, it's a little interesting story. I, uh, when I was uh, a teenager, I did uh, an undergraduate in maths and computer science. I did both. Uh, I loved coding. Went off into the big wide world. I had a young family and everything, and so I needed a job, so I was programming. Loved that. And ended up in 15 years in state government and then 15 years in business. And I, I was in uh, the, a large telecommunications company and uh, I was talking with a manager one day many years ago now and he was down visiting and he just he just said to me, Jim, you know, just always remember have a plan B because you know, any time any large company wants to get rid of staff, they will do that. And I mean, they'll pay you out and all that, but you know, have a plan B ready to go just in case it happens. Now that wasn't, he wasn't dropping hints or anything. It was just giving good advice. And that's when I wound up wandering into the university and saying, well, I think I want to study something, but I'm not really sure. And I ended up in the office of the professor of maths and physics. And uh, he says, well, what interests you? And I always liked and enjoyed atomic clocks and accurate clocks. It always fascinated me. And um, it's a little hobby of mine. And I said, and he, and he said, what interests you? And I answered, well, accurate clocks. And he goes, right, you need to study pulsars. And that was it. You know, <laughs> I found myself <laughs> learning all about pulsars. And it was amazing. He knew, he knew exactly what he was doing when he said that because it's very important to have an interest in what you're studying. And so I, I studied that part-time, ended up with my master's. It took me about five years in the end. And finished my master's, all very satisfying, fantastic. And six months later, I was retrenched. So I turned up back back at the university and, and signed up for a PhD. Uh, and I'm a, probably about, about a year to go. That's probably where I'm at the moment. Terrific. And if people want to find your work online, is there a website? So if you want to find my papers and want to read those, a warning, they're very scientific and very dedicated and, and written in the scientific method. So they can be a bit of a hard read. And you, you can find those, if you just Googled my name, Jim Palfreyman, P-A-L-F-R-E-Y-M-A-N, and just look, put Vila Pulsar after that, you'll find you'll find some stuff, you'll find links to the papers. A couple of websites in America, science websites, have picked up the paper and, and um, put some stuff online as well. And that's uh, they've done a pretty good job of talking talking about what I pretty much just explained here. I'll have a blog, jimpolferman.blogspot.com.au, and I, I plan to uh, update that with sort of some more general sort of consumer-friendly descriptions of what I'm studying. Science is a lot of fun. I, I've probably never enjoyed my uh, career more than what I'm doing now in research. It's a lot of fun. It's a detective story. I really, really enjoy it. Publishing is... Getting a paper published, you get a lot of kudos from, you know, the university and, and, and colleagues and so on. But the one thing I feel that it sort of dawned on me the other day as I was sitting there reading a paper that was published back only a little bit after I was born and I was reading the paper and the author, who's who's probably long dead now, but he's left a, a mark on society and here I was reading his paper and, and referencing it and using it. And, and I thought, well, actually, it, that feeling like you're making a difference to sort of humanity is, uh, is actually a really good feeling. Whereas, you know, my previous employee, both my employers, where I, you know, worked on lots of projects, I can guarantee you they're all long dead and long gone and, you know, <laughs> no benefit to society at all, probably. I mean, they were at the time, but not now. So I really enjoy that aspect of the scientific method, being able to contribute in, um, you know, to what humanity knows. That's a very, very satisfying thing. So. Well, Jim Paul Freeman, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you very much, Ian. 
That was Jim Palfreyman, astrophysicist from the University of Tasmania, talking about pulsars. And next up, they might be giants with science is real. Hello! Hello! We are They Might Be Giants. And we want to welcome you to our musical laboratory. As the philosopher Rudolf Carnap once so clearly said, <clears throat> Science is a system of statements based on direct experience and controlled by experimental verification. Or as we say, science is real. Science is real from anatomy to geology. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and we'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. 
knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.